0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series finale of Here's the Plan. I'm James Miller.
1: And I'm Bella Lack. And over the last 10 weeks, we've gone through 10 different solutions to tackle the climate and nature crisis, building up a bit of a blueprint to save our planet and ourselves. James and I have been fortunate enough to talk with some leading figures around the world and kind of draw out their wisdom in some fascinating interviews. James, I don't even know where to begin. We've learned so much. How do you feel? It's gone.
0: The time's really flown past. And I think also something to point out to people listening is that actually, even though we've released this over 10 weeks, we've been working on this for about a year now, more than a year.
1: Longer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Almost a year and a half doing it alongside our degrees at university.
1: And when James says alongside, literally running out of lectures, going into random rooms
0: <laughs> yeah it's been fantastic i really feel that i have actually learned a huge amount i think my understanding just from these 10 conversations all of which have lasted less than an hour have actually really significantly deepened my understanding of the problems that we're facing and of the ways that people are trying to solve them all around the world and really what's holding up progress, what it is that we need to focus our efforts on to change.
1: I think exactly the same. I've definitely come away with more questions than answers, but I think they're now the right questions and we're going to go into those a bit. We're going to have an even briefer shallower skim over the topics to try and synthesize all the information.
0: We've covered so, so much. And it's really important for us to go back over, really distill what the key bits of wisdom that we gleaned from those people, bring them all together and build the master plan. I'm really excited for it. But I also think we probably ought to dive into it pretty quickly because there's a lot mm. to get through and we don't want to bore people.
1: So let's jump into podcast one, Lead with Cities. In our first episode released back in September, we talked to Victoria Simon, the Executive Officer of Sustainability for Los Angeles. James, what was your biggest takeaway from the episode?
0: My most important takeaway from that episode is how cities are an important unit of change. How, if we think strategically about climate action, and focus our efforts on cities, rather than looking, for example, at national governments, that can really help us to accelerate our objectives. And I think, you know, the reasons for that, there are so many things like just the fact that cities represent an immense concentration of people and also a real dense concentration of environmental impacts and resources. Cities are also more agile in their decision making, they've got fewer bureaucratic layers, so they're more flexible to make those policies and changes quickly. And also, they can maybe introduce measures that are a little more effective because they can make them tailored to the populations and the circumstances Mm -hmm. in a more localised way, which you really can't do if you're a national government bringing in policies at the national level.
1: Victoria focused on cities as an experimental hub. And then in this case, with C40, expanding that out to a global network. So the thing I think I took away the most is change can be this kind of multi-layered network, And I found it was really interesting how she talked about simultaneously targeting inequities and environmental issues within cities and how interlinked they are. Like within Los Angeles, how typically it has been communities of colour which have been more affected by polluted stormwater runoff, dirty air and lack of access to parks and open spaces. And by targeting environmental inequality within the city, they've been able to rectify some of those issues so I think looking at that at a community level is also an interesting gateway in a way to looking at global inequity and how we include the social aspect in the transition.
0: Yeah, such an important point. Right. And it's one that we touched on in so many of our different episodes, mm. especially now that we're getting to some of the harder elements of our decarbonization mm. journey where decisions may start to touch people's lives a little more. It's something we need to um, bear in mind. One last thing that I wanted to pull from this episode was how Victoria thought that changing institutional structures was important. What she did was she put a sustainability officer in each of the departments in the government, rather than having just a single centralized sustainability department. So rather than having that one sustainability department having to fight its corner against all of the others... All of the departments were acting in harmony, and the sustainability strategy was much better integrated into everyone's work with the people who had that knowledge of what was going on in each of the departments already. You know, I think I kind of see it a bit like an octopus because you know, octopuses, you may not know know this about octopuses. And by the way, for anyone listening who's particularly pedantic, it is octopuses and not octopi. I'm actually right.
1: No one, no one disputed it.
0: (laughs) You just can't hear them, Bella. I bet they are. But yes, octopuses. They have a central brain, which, you know, it's it's like our brains. It guides the, the desires and the direction of the whole animal. But they also have loads of little brains, one in each of their eight tentacles, or little, I say little brains, they're actually, they're called ganglia and they're little, little neuronal clusters. And those, what they do is they kind of control the finer dexterity and movement and control of each of the tentacles. So each tentacle is kind of semi-independent, doing its own thing but it's also guided by the central brain. And I think that's kind of how I see the Los Angeles city government.
1: I love the metaphor and I think it'll be taken well. Okay, we have to move on to law.
0: Yeah, what did you take away from our episode on law?
1: I think a massive thing is I've seen the economy and the political system and the legal system as these big systems governing what we do. And I think what we saw within the law episode was that the real ultimate enforcement of these decisions takes place through activism and advocacy and ensuring that the law is then carried out and implemented properly. And in the UK, we're seeing massive shutting down right now of avenues of protest. It's a a big threat to our democracy.
0: I think that's a very good point that you made. The law isn't just kind of operating its own little floating sphere above the rest of us. But actually, it really depends on the general public and on activists to hold governments and companies to account. And to put pressure when a legal decision does get made. We are the level on which ultimate accountability sits. The other things that I took away from that is that what Jerry showed us was that law can be really important for stepping in when we have to make a really big radical change in society. You know, what we were talking about with him is the fact that under the Paris Agreement, targets are self determined and governments just aren't stepping up to the plate and setting targets on the level that they need to. Mm. And that to be fair, it is it is really difficult to expect them to do that because it does require substantial ambition, probably moving faster than a lot of the public and businesses might want them to. And when we're trying to make a change that is as profound and radical as that, that is potentially where the law can be used to give society some direction to say, ultimately, this is what we've decided is right and wrong. And based on that, this is what we need to do.
1: I think an interesting thing in Jerry's case that we're seeing, which is a bit of a microcosm of a bigger issue, is the government's kind of trivialising the case as inadmissible. They're actively choosing to do nothing And I think so it was a bit of a microcosm of governments no longer dismissing climate change, but instead delaying and saying that they're doing enough, which is essentially what happened within Jerry's case. There's no longer climate denial in the way there was about a decade ago. Hmm. But now there's climate delay and there's governments saying, but we have these pledges and that's enough. But the space that we need to look at is what's the space between action and promise? So I would say that there's a lot of delay in dismissal.
0: Mm, Yes, 100%. I think there are um, a few other ways in which law can be really useful, because as well as using that litigation against governments, you can use them against companies. And there are a lot of really exciting lawsuits that are trying to do this at the moment, in trying to hold big polluters accountable for the damage that they're causing, and use that to claim money off them to help pay back damages that have been inflicted on the most affected communities. That's going to be really exciting. Apart from using litigation to hold people accountable to pre existing laws, writing new laws and tightening regulations can make a huge, huge difference. I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago who was responsible for creating some regulations, some legislation in the US on mercury and air toxics. And that caused a massive decrease in the emission of toxic pollutants from power stations that's probably saved so many lives in the last few years. Mm -hmm.
1: And as well as just new legislation, we need new forms of legislation which are more preemptive and not reactionary. Because, as we said in the episode, within the European Convention Human Rights Framework, it's kind of designed to deal with harms that have already occurred. So I think we need more preemptive laws.
0: On the front of developing new kinds of law, I think what's a really exciting thing to look at in the coming years is the development of laws in areas like rights of nature and ecocide. Just last week, the EU introduced some legislation, which is, Mm. in effect, ecocide law. I don't know if you heard about this, Bella. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. I get to be the bearer of good news. The EU, on Thursday, introduced Mm. some law that would punish actions that cause widespread, substantial and long-term harm to ecosystems or air, soil and water. All of these things can be punished at both an individual and a company-wide level the text doesn't use the word ecocide, but it, in effect, it amounts to ecocide. That's exactly what it's doing.
1: I wonder why they've avoided using the word ecocide. I, I wonder if that's intentional.
0: I'm not sure. But nevertheless, that's really cool because that's just something a few weeks ago mm. we were talking about as a potential future possibility. And now it's it's a thing.
1: Yeah. And ecocide is something which has been a massive discussion within Central and South America. and. Rights of nature. I think the first rights of nature case I heard about was granted to a river in Ecuador. But talking about Central America, we're going to go to Costa Rica, which is where our next episode was based. In our next episode, Saving the Forest, we spoke to Carlos Rodriguez. Environment and Energy Minister for Costa Rica for three terms. And personally, I'd been most excited for this episode. I love Costa Rica. I reference Costa Rica at every opportunity.
0: Yeah, it was really fascinating to have Carlos talk to us about the way that Costa Rica was protecting its forest. It's something that's really important for us to do, protecting this tropical rainforest around the world, because it Tropical rainforests house more than 80% of the world's biodiversity and hundreds of billions of tons of carbon. So both from like a climate and nature perspective, protecting this forest, 6% of the land surface has hugely disproportionate benefits. And it was really cool to hear in his own words what it was that Carlos thought was important to allowing Costa Rica to do what no other country has managed to do, to double its forest cover in just... 30 years which is really extraordinary what did you take away from it
1: something big which you referenced earlier was this once again this departmental focus which carlos said we needed victoria and carlos are working for the same vision which is a more holistic approach to environmentalism but they took completely different paths to a more holistic vision to kind of merge different governmental sectors um, and have environmentalism as a core value of society and they did this not just through mindset and narrative, they did it as well through financial incentives, through the PES scheme.
0: For people that don't know, that's payment for ecosystem services. And you can hear about it in more detail on that podcast episode. But basically, the principle of of paying people for protecting ecosystems benefits those provide to people.
1: Yeah. And I think Costa Rica it provides us with possibility and hope, but not a game plan. It's more the idea that we can change and make transformative change if needed. And they showed us that environmental sustainability isn't a direct correlation to the wealth of a country, but rather to how committed they are.
0: But it's been really impressive. And so thinking about like scaling up what they did, as you said, you know, every country's circumstances are different. But what Carlos mentioned that he thought was particularly important was setting more robust laws that attaches nicely to our previous episode. As you mentioned, changing from negative incentives that incentivize people to destroy the forest to positive ones that incentivize them to protect it. And there were some other things that weren't in the episode as well. Things like we need to empower indigenous landowners, give them their land rights because actually restoring land rights of indigenous people we know is one of the most effective ways to protect forests. It tends to reduce deforestation dramatically compared to areas not owned by indigenous people. And we need to direct international flows of money towards protecting the forest to reward those countries that are developing, that are low-income countries for protecting their natural resources and not exploiting them for profit. Because ultimately, I think it's a bit patronizing to, to go into a country like that where a lot of people are still living below the poverty line and tell them they need to protect those forests when they might need those for for their income. And so we really need to upscale that finance to those countries quite dramatically. I read a report that said we might need to increase finance flows by up to 200 times by 2030 compared to what they are now. That's if we want to halt deforestation by 2030. That's going to be really tricky. We need to get wealthy countries like ours to step up to the mark, And, I think it's an and, we need to leverage better flows of private finance. For example, that could be carbon credits, which we'll come on to later.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the last thing, which may be one of the most important points, actually, is that one of the most critical things to do to protect natural habitats like forest is to stop the encroachment and the continued expansion of farmlands into the last remaining intact habitats. And that's what our next episode was about. It was about revolutionising farming. We spoke with Arnavaz Shatan, who was the director of sustainability for a vertical farming company called InFarm. And that's kind of what they were working on. They were looking to see how we can produce food in a much more space-efficient way, freeing up a lot more land for natural habitats, and at the same time, circumventing a lot of the negative impacts on the environment that tend to come from producing food in a very small amount of land, things like huge amounts of pesticide and herbicide and fertiliser use.
1: Yeah, I think talking about pesticides and fertilisers, a very interesting thing. 98% of hydrogen used during fertiliser creation is derived from fossil fuels. So fertiliser is a product of the fossil fuel industry. So when we talk about the agricultural industry, there are lots of other strings that we're pulling out because the fossil fuel industry is looking to maintain their profit by funneling their fuels into soil and food as well so you can see that agriculture is a really great space to look at all the links between these bigger systems all of us eat so because it's such a global and relatable thing for us to think about it it's a great ground for everyone to come together and really see where all these different links and of change congregate that's very
0: true been a very good link for you to pull out there i'm impressed But also, there are some other things that we need to do when it comes to farming that may be a little more tricky. So as well as intensifying food production around the world so that we can produce the same amount of food in a smaller amount of land and trying to avoid the negative impacts that that normally comes with, which we mentioned, we need to take measures on the demand side. We need to look at trying to eliminate food waste. About a third of food all around the world is wasted every year that food waste happens at the farm level, it happens at the consumer side, it happens due to structural reasons with food distribution and economics. If we can sort that out, that will take us a huge amount further. And we also need to try and transition Mm -hmm. diets as well, especially in the West with the huge amount of meat and animal products that we consume, that's extraordinarily um, land inefficient. At the moment, there's um, a rising economic class in developing countries of people that are starting to be able to afford more meat. And if they consume meat to the same degree that we are, that would be environmentally catastrophic. So we need right now to start cutting our consumption of some of the most environmentally harmful food products to give other countries, the wiggle room to increase their meat consumption and meet them halfway.
1: Exactly. And I think we don't have to just view ourselves as consumers as well. We can view ourselves as producers and we should start viewing ourselves as producers. 60% of London is classified as public open space. And I think it's crazy that most of that is an ecological wasteland when instead we could turn that into thriving urban agricultural pockets. So we could have people making their own community gardens, growing your own local produce. I think there's air miles, but there's also this idea of this concept that we have of food is something which we don't have any emotional connection to. We don't know how it's being produced and we have no idea what the supply chain constitutes. So we just need to become a bit more intimate with our food, I guess. Yeah,
0: that links to something that we'll come on to a bit later, which is adaptation and resilience. It's all about building up resilience in our societies in anticipation of potential shocks to systems like the food system that may come from climate change down the line. I think that's, that's a really important thing to look out for with food.
1: The next episode was Fionn Ferreira, and he talked about plastic pollution. Plastic, I think, has been well, it used to be at least many people's gateway into environmentalism. Not so much now. And I think it hides slightly in the corner, dwarfed by the climate crisis, but they're also very interconnected, both a result of the fossil fuel industry. What do you think about what Fionn said?
0: Fionn spoke to us about his fantastic invention for cleaning up microplastics from water to shield us from some of those human health impacts and to filter out wastewater as well before it goes into. Water courses and into the ocean. That's a really important part of the problem. But also, we need to do other things as well before we get to the cleanup stage or simultaneously to building up that cleanup capacity. We need to cut plastic production. We need to start weaning ourselves off the production as quickly as we possibly can because, you know, no matter how much we clean up, the more plastic we produce, the more is going to be around in the world. And then we need to cut demand for plastic materials Mm. where it's possible using new laws and new taxes. And there were some fantastic examples of these that we looked at in the episodes in the UK and around Europe as well. And finally, I think we need to look at making a more circular economy, increasing recycling and ensuring that when we produce plastics, we can keep them in a cycle of use so that we don't have to produce more?
1: Yeah, I think that reducing consumption and the circular economy go hand in hand. We've seen the circular economy being initiated in countries. We haven't yet seen the long-term effects, but being used as a way to reduce consumption. And I think that's what we have to talk about when we're talking about plastics. We can keep doing our beach cleanups, but it's simply not enough.
0: Do you remember that in that episode, which we did a few weeks ago now, we were talking about the global plastics treaty that was going to be under negotiation in November? Those negotiations have actually happened now. And it's, well, I guess in a depressingly predictable way, which I think we forecast on the episode and no points to us because everyone saw it coming, is that the general level of ambition across all countries was pretty decent, but it was being stalled as per usual by just a few countries with oil interests, which were using, you know, the fact that these treaties uh, have to have absolute unanimity to, to stall action because plastics are made from oil and those countries want to keep producing oil and selling it. And if they know that oil is being kicked out of the electricity and the energy sector now, and they see plastic as their chance to continue that business going into the future. And so the next round of negotiations is in April of next year. We really need to think about how we can deal with the obstacles they're throwing up in the negotiations. I don't know if there's a way to do that.
1: It is scarily impressive how the fossil fuel industry manages to disguise their interests behind so many different industries. They use agriculture, they use plastics. It's kind of like a liquid. You cover one hole and it will they'll stream out of another hole and find somewhere else to manifest. So I guess it requires a high level of awareness. Everyone needs to be a watchdog. There's an active effort to oppose change and solutions which are being proposed.
0: Mm. And this is something Louisa spoke about in one of our later Mm. episodes as well. She spoke about just the, the absolutely pervasive web of influence that the fossil fuel industry has in the world and how we can absolutely no longer see them as good actors with good intentions that are trying to participate in this transition. They're stalling climate ambition, blocking climate policies, pushing media narratives that villainize protesters, peddling in misinformation. We've got to try and see the big picture of what it is that they're doing because, you know, otherwise it's just like playing chess blindfolded, isn't it?
1: Mm. And a big way that they do it is through greenwashing things like through carbon credits and offsetting, which is tricky and very nuanced because they can be used for good. We spoke to our next guest, Anil Madhavapedi, who discussed carbon credits with us.
0: What I came away from that episode thinking is that the the way that carbon credits work around the world right now is pretty, it's all a bit messed up. It's carbon credits on the markets, the vast majority of them don't do what they say they're going to do. They don't store as much carbon as they say they will. Sometimes they're conferring no additional value whatsoever. And often the the stores of carbon aren't very permanent and are vulnerable to being destroyed and released back into the atmosphere. So these are things that we have to watch out for. But, you know, as Anil was saying, carbon credits could also be really essential for things like we mentioned with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, for bringing in that flow of private capital to protect rainforests around the world, where governments just simply aren't stepping up to the plate, and for doing things like building up finance for longer term carbon removals that we know that we need to do by 2050 to balance out residual emissions. We know we have to do that stuff. Carbon credits is one mechanism for doing that. And I think if we can sort out some of the problems that we know exist, rather than throwing away the baby with the bathwater, I think it's important to think about how we can fix them rather than abandon them. That's my personal opinion. I don't know
1: about you. Right now, the carbon market has a problem, which is that it's a wild west, it's unregulated. And there's something called the rebound effect, which is if people think their carbon emitting activities are covered by offsetting, they have very little incentive to actually reduce their emissions. So offsetting can result in a continuation, even an expansion of people's intensive carbon activities because of this illusion that we're having no impact. When you're considering A flight, for example, offsetting. Firstly, you should think, do I need to take this flight? And then offsetting can be considered That's up to the individual.
0: Yeah, but it's the same at the the company level, right? We need to make sure that their carbon credit buying isn't detracting from or substituting for the internal decarbonisation that they have to do of their own value chain. And I think, you know, I hope I'm not being too optimistic in saying this. I think this is an attitude um, that's starting to be more widely understood among businesses. And we're starting to see some standards being brought into place that are making sure that companies do that. Mm -hmm. And there was the interesting study that we spoke about at the end of that episode, which was talking about how actually this study found that companies that were using carbon credits were almost decarbonizing their internal value chain emissions twice as quickly as ones that weren't using carbon credits, which is kind of suggesting that that it's not all greenwashing, that these companies are genuinely being
1: more ambitious. Yeah, I like your uh, optimism. I've seen companies tending to green hushing, which is when, as a result of the fear of being called out on greenwashing, companies uh, avoid actually publishing their stringent emissions reductions, targets. It is important to recognise change and to recognise genuine commitment to reducing emissions where possible. We congratulate them and we we recognise that change is happening.
0: It is, it's a really tricky balance, isn't it? We need the accountability, but we need to make it informed. And I think the key to that is maybe it's moving away from simple terms like carbon neutrality That can often be misleading. They can make people think that this company is having no impact on the climate whatsoever, and instead moving towards a more nuanced communication of what those companies are trying to do, the kinds of projects that they're investing in, um, and the other benefits that those might be having for nature and for people. Um, And that's another point, actually, is as well as making sure carbon credits are used responsibly, we need to make sure that the credits that they do use have high integrity, that do what they say they're doing, and that have positives, not negatives, for local communities and for nature. Mm. I think we should have a little break for a moment to um, let listeners catch their breath, because we've just been through a lot, and we've got four more episodes still to come. While the listeners are doing that, I very politely suggest that maybe they could put us on pause for just one minute, two minutes maybe, at a push. Go on to Spotify, Follow us, give us a five-star rating, go on to Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and write us a review. A complimentary review would be lovely. If you do these things, these could really help more people find our podcast and boost us in the rankings. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, we would really appreciate you doing that. It'll take just one minute, put us on pause, and then we'll see you imminently.
1: Our next guest is Louisa Neubauer in our episode Build a Movement. Louisa is one of the most well-known prominent climate activists in Germany. She started the German Fridays for Future movement, took her government to court and won. And so I think is one of the best people to turn to when we're talking about how to build a movement. But James, what did you take?
0: She's thought very deeply about messaging, about what of our messaging has worked as a climate movement and about where the public is with their understanding of climate change, how many of them know about it, how many of them care about it, and how we can mobilise people to do something. I think that was really important.
1: She called herself a possibilist. She said she's not optimistic or pessimistic, she's a possibilist. She thinks it's necessary, as well as talking about how pervasive and malicious the fossil fuel industry is, talking about the possibilities of what needs to change, what can change, And being realistic as well.
0: I think that possibilist attitude was one of the most critical things. Like you say, putting people in that position of agency where they recognise that there are multiple paths ahead of us, but crucially that they're in a position where they do have an influence over which path we go down. Alongside that, I think we do need to keep reiterating the basics of climate science. I think something that's changed personally for my perception of climate communication in the last decade is the realisation that actually that's not something we can just tick a box on and say, we've done that, we can move on to the next step. Actually, keeping covering those basics of climate science in simple terms and making it engaging to audiences is, is really important. And just a little shout out to a group that I think is doing amazing work on this. Have you heard of the climate science breakthrough, Bella?
1: No, I haven't.
0: So they're producing a series of videos talking about climate science with some really famous, well-established climate scientists who know a lot, but pairing them up with comedians who then translate that climate science into everyday language.
1: I have seen they posted a video on LinkedIn about a week ago. Yeah, it's great.
0: It's great and a really good way of making it fun and engaging. So I think that's that's one thing. Another thing, something else that Luisa spoke about is the fact that rather than just telling facts and, you know, scaring people with the realities of the science, we also we need to make it a motive. We need to give people a reason to care and we need to play to people's values, their hearts as well as their minds. And that I think that's something that, especially now we get into the more difficult elements of decarbonisation, facts alone aren't going to be enough to win people over. We need to we need to tell a story about the future that we want to live in.
1: Louisa did have this sort of captivating clarity in the way she spoke, and I think everyone could do with a bit more of that clarity and kind of taking a step back and removing. Your personal obligations and looking at the bigger picture.
0: You've just reminded me. One thing that I think is is really sad is how the youth climate movement in the UK kind of died with COVID. Those school strikes that used to happen every Friday, that's a, a really important missing component of the activist ecosystem right now. They were a group of activists that were much harder for certain groups of the media to attack and vilify and I think brought a real moral clarity to the public consciousness that other activists just are really struggling to do right now.
1: I mean, the media did manage to vilify lots of activists, I would say. Another topic entirely.
0: That's true. But but I agree.
1: I definitely, we did witness the decline during COVID. I I thought there would be a resurgence afterwards more powerful as well because people had taken the time to step back and look at strategy, but we never saw that.
0: And I think, frankly, if we still had them going right now, the government wouldn't have been able to walk back on climate pledges like it has done, as Luisa describes. And you know, having that sense of pressure from the public mainstream really acts as like a an accelerator on the foot pedal behind all of these solutions. <laughs> and while Luisa was talking about how we can build that movement to catalyse pressure across all of society... Our next episode with Simon Sharp was looking at how we can make change happen far faster without needing a change in public consciousness or political motivation, just by being a little bit smarter in the way that we do economics and diplomacy.
1: The biggest thing I took away was that diplomacy isn't something I think about a lot which is weird considering how much talking underpins so much of what we do. Simon said that we need to improve diplomatic processes so that they're focused on smaller scale sectors. And if you think about it, it is crazy that when we have global decisions, the scope of the problem is set at the maximum. Right now, it's far too broad. We're looking at how we can reduce all emissions all at once. And also, when we're looking globally, we will only move as fast as the lowest common denominator or the slowest country or the most resistant country in lots of cases. And Simon's proposes that to overcome this, we need a new model that focuses on each of the diplomatic sectors differently, a simplification. So we have groups of people within sectors that discuss and strategize and create legislation.
0: Exactly that. By drawing the scope more narrowly, just getting the few key actors that are responsible for the largest share of the market to work together and circumvent those bad actors that tend to obstruct action and lower ambition is really important. And also, you know, he mentioned another justification for that is just because countries are really unwilling to commit themselves to things in the long term. Whereas if we mm. shift the emphasis onto short-term actions, ways that those countries can collaborate in the immediate present to unlock faster action, yeah. then countries might actually be far more ambitious than they would otherwise.
1: That's a really interesting point. He, he calls it path dependency. And you can kind of imagine it as a mountain range, which is that lots of countries are willing to take the easiest next step which if you think about a mountain range, you're climbing a mountain, the easiest next step might not necessarily be the easiest mountain. Mm. You can overcome this uh, inability to think long-term by really getting down into sort of the nitty-gritty of what needs to happen and how this sector can commit to that.
0: Absolutely. The other really important aspect that Simon spoke about was the need to develop our literacy when it comes to economics and seeing the economy as a system. The great example that Simon mentioned was how in Norway... They specifically designed subsidies and taxes so that the the cost of electric vehicles just fell below the cost of equivalent petrol and diesel cars. And how as soon as you cross that little tipping point where the polluting products becomes just more expensive than the greener alternative, that actually unlocks exponential uptake of that green technology.
1: I mean the UK has been to an extent successful in through the fixed carbon tax within the power sector. We have a way to go.
0: And it's happening around the world as well right now. Renewable electricity coming from wind and solar is now cheaper than oil and gas. And so pretty much inevitably those fossil fuels are going to start to be kicked out of the electricity sector. One thing that Luisa mentioned is the fact that even if we develop these green alternatives, there's the power of incumbency and learned habits in that people lead busy lives. And even if some new alternative becomes slightly cheaper, it might be that we actually need to bring in some kind of negative incentive to try and shift people away from the old and onto the new even if there is that price advantage, just because of learned habits.
1: People are slowed away from things they know. It's something which we talked about a lot in our next episode with Timothée Perique We talked about degrowth, and obviously a new economic concept such as degrowth requires people to detach from the existing concept of growth and of GDP and the linear capitalist economy that we operate under. It's very complex. But I think speaking to Timothy was kind of eye-opening and mind-blowing because it's, it's a way of thinking which I haven't done a lot before um, and requires lots of reframing of structures which you grow up believing so much in and operating under. So you kind of have to step so far outside the box to just begin to understand and conceptualise what he tells you. What was your initial thought on the idea of degrowth?
0: I think I learned a lot from Timothée. It was something that I looked a bit at as part of my degree, but the conversation with Timothée made several things a lot clearer for me, especially you know, the idea, and I agree with him, that I think although change is happening at the moment in terms of decarbonisation, it's probably unrealistic to think that it will happen in any way quickly enough to stay below 1.5 degrees unless we start to consider slowing down the growth of the global economy rather than putting our foot further down on the accelerator and also the fact that even if we can decarbonize quickly enough while still growing the economy ultimately it's going to be physically impossible to keep doing that indefinitely without using more resources and without transgressing these other planetary boundaries and putting pressure on other environmental problems that are also really important, like land use and biodiversity and fresh water and pesticides and plastics and things.
1: Right now, we're seeing nature as an externality in our economy. And it's been said time and time again by Kate Raworth we need to have this donut model which stays within the nine planetary boundaries where the economy is embedded within nature, rather than seeing nature as an externality. And I think right now within our economy, people are very disconnected from a feeling of meaningful contribution and a lack of value. And I think that's what Timothy Tay does so well. He said, we need to rethink what a good livelihood is, what should constitute a good livelihood. And GDP isn't inherently the issue in itself. It's the fact that we're using it as the sole metric of success. And there should be other pillars like political, social and environmental success, which are considered within the broader spectrum.
0: And so like agreeing that this growth at all costs attitude is something that we need to move away from. I think we need to start bringing this into public cognizance now, bearing in mind the current political landscape and the fact that being anti-growth isn't, isn't a popular flag to be waving right now. That looks like starting with a few pioneering businesses and cities like Amsterdam, potentially, and using those as a proof of concept. And that brings us on to our final episode. We're almost at the end now, everyone. Well done for sticking it through so far. One episode left. That was a conversation with Ralph Regan Vanu, who is the Minister for Climate Change, Energy and Environment, and Disaster Management for the Republic of Vanuatu, uh, which is the most climate-vulnerable country in the world. That was a really interesting and important conversation that we had about global justice, about adaptation, and about how it's important to build a sense of global solidarity and protect the most vulnerable people in the face of climate change.
1: I remember our debrief clearly because it was last week and I talked about sort of feeling guilty after coming away from that episode at the inaction that developed countries have been a part of. The undoubtable, indisputable fact that without a diversion of funds towards the global south for mitigation and adaptation, we're not going to be able to, to do what needs to be done The biggest thing I took away is just the fact that we need to get a well-financed loss and damage fund and that investment is the key.
0: He said that using private financing would be absolutely essential for the loss and damage fund as well as the wealthiest countries dipping into their pockets. We can also mobilise huge amounts of money for that fund just by putting a tax of as little as $1 a day, $1 per barrel on oil traded. If we do these things, we both create a really strong disincentive to do those polluting activities and raise a huge amount of finance which can go towards those countries, which right now, they just don't have the resources to be able to build resilient infrastructure and to adapt to the climate change that's already starting to hit them and is only going to get worse in the coming decades.
1: Both Ralph and Carlos talked about the lack of partisan alignment within their environmental movement in their respective countries. So people aren't as resistant to environmental legislation, which is something that we need to move as well, which is cross partisan support for environmental policies within countries.
0: We move towards the end, thinking about how important it will be for a lot of different reasons, just to build a sense of global solidarity among countries going into this, because we know that all countries are going to suffer as a result of climate change, some more than others. Supporting those most vulnerable countries isn't just a matter of generosity, of justice, but it's also a very strategic thing to do from a selfish perspective, because by protecting other countries in such a globalised, connected world, you're also protecting yourself.
1: COP28 begins on the 30th of November very soon. COP27 deliberations were on a new collective quantified goal on climate finance, and I think it's going to be a big, big topic this year. It's an important thing to make sure that the needs and priorities of developing countries are being taken into account.
0: Wow, is that us done?
1: It doesn't feel like it.
0: <laughs> no, it doesn't feel like it. Maybe we should do a series too. I do feel that there were several important things in this plan that were missed out. It would be really interesting to talk about the role of media and public communications, the role of business, of cultural change, and how artists and musicians change and the public narrative.
1: Mm, I think off the role of media and public communication, something you highlighted with Louisa, which was interesting, is that we need to keep covering the basics within media and within communication. And I hope we've managed to do that. We haven't jumped in at the deep end with lots of these people. And we've sort of brought people along from the start.
0: Yeah. And I hope we've done that, Bella. I'm not sure whether or not we have, it would be really great if people could give us some feedback in the reviews, or you can message us on Instagram or other social media platforms where we are. It would be really valuable to us to hear any of your feedback about this podcast, whether that's the content, the presentation, the measures that we propose, and whether or not you agree with those. We would love to hear from you, whatever your comments are. It would be fantastic. So please do get in touch.
1: I think just as a few final words, What we've discussed is gritty and complex and we're sort of juddering forward, sometimes backward, sometimes 10 steps back and one forward. I haven't had a moment of clarity throughout the series thinking this is the plan. We've discovered it. And I don't think there will be that moment. I think depending on which sector you're in, where you work, we need to collectively change our values to respect something more circular, more equitable and Less impactful on the planet. But depending on the context of which you live, that's going to differ. I think there are going to be 8.1 billion different plans. There's a lot of hope, a lot of creativity, lots of solutions, and many, many people who are looking towards a better future. And it gives me a lot of hope. I don't know how you feel coming away from that.
0: I do feel a lot of hope. You know, I think what we've just seen in 10 discrete episodes is 10 different people who are proving in a very clear and very tangible way that individual people when equipped with knowledge and understanding and passion can make a huge difference and i think that's one real takeaway i love everyone to make but i also love what you said of the fact that we need 8.1 billion different plans and i think a, a great ultimate takeaway for everyone would be go away and make your own plan based on the spheres that you can influence your skills your talents what you care about. Make a plan.
1: Very so would, Simon Sharp.
0: Yes, very Simon Sharp. He'd he'd approve.
1: And then send them to us.
0: Yes, please do. That would be amazing.
1: And I know this is it's been a bit of a trick question saying what's the plan? And then saying to you, Ha, there isn't one.
0: <laughs> Maybe you should have called it here's not the plan.
1: Hopefully everyone's more equipped with information which I guess can be seen as a utensil to dig their own path.
0: We've been rambling again, Bella. We've been going on too long. We need to wrap this up. As always. A big thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks so much for listening to this final episode. If you listen to the whole series, that's fantastic. But there's some other people that we need to thank this episode as well.
1: Yeah, we need to thank Erifon who have produced the series, RSPB who covered the cost of production for us, and Tanashi, Big Group who have given us advice on marketing and helped with promotional material and probably despised and resented me at every stage because I'm so bad at promotion and all of our guests who have given us the time and a big thank you to the other podcasts into the wild and outrage and optimism who gave us advice right from the outset who shared our podcast and who also provided us with places to go and see how advanced podcasts work
0: so go and check them out actually they're both fantastic shows yeah absolutely into the wild and outrage and optimism
1: and thank you james for every step of the way, coming up with the idea of the podcast, I think even the name of the podcast, getting lots of the guests and to find a plan and commit to that.
0: That's very sweet of you, Bella. Thank you so much as well for, for helping me through all this, for doing this series with me. It's been so fun. You've learned so much. And yes, watch this space. There may be something else coming. We'll see. It depends how complimentary all of you are on the other side. reviews. So it's down to you guys. We'll see.
1: And there's only one thing that can be left to say. Bye. Bye.